Indeed, happy Father's Day to all the dads. Uh, It's a great day to be a dad, one day of the year where it's all about me. And the dad said, amen. (laughs) That's bad theology, actually, but uh, I think you'll forgive me for uh, this weekend taking a uh, detour from our Ecclesiastes series. Uh, And to take this Father's Day and to talk about what it means to be a father, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a masculine, gendered human being. And I think the reason that you will forgive me is I'm going to guess that you, like me, are astonished at the really uh, uh, massive change that has taken place in our culture with respect to those very issues of what it means to be a man and what it means, therefore, to be a husband and what it means to be a father. You know, it was just, I think, roughly a year ago that uh, Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, and somehow that seemed to be a kind of tipping point for our society as it just blew up this huge conversation and massive changes going on in our society right now, uh, you know, with access to bathrooms and uh, even the President of the United States issuing an order that every public school must allow transgender access to bathrooms. Who saw that one coming just a few years ago? I certainly didn't. I mean, if you went 10 years ago and said, this is the way it's going to be, most of us would say, I can't ever see that happening. And yet, this is where we're at right now in our, in our culture. And you combine that with all of the sexual politics that are going on right now, uh, a lot of it flowing from the LBGT community with, uh, with all these things. And we just live in a day of incredible confusion not only with like which bathroom do I use, but just with the more foundational questions of humanity. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And therefore then, what does it mean to be a husband and a wife? What does it mean to be a mom or a dad? Especially for young people right now, because when you're young, you're your identity is, is forming, you're, you're looking in the mirror and you're trying to figure out who you are. And for our young people right now, uh, where the society at large is wanting to confuse and wanting to blur lines and wanting to create what I just read recently, um, this sort of gender fluidity where we just sort of see ourselves on a broader spectrum and we kind of pick you know, where we want to be and who we want to identify with and what gender I want to primarily see myself as being. Our young people have incredible challenges right now that most of us did not face in our years growing up. And so the church has to say something about that and to teach on that. And I think that Father's Day is a good opportunity to talk about biblical masculinity and what it means to be a man. As we see really our culture around us deconstructing what God ordered in creation and declared to be very good. Now I'm going to begin with just uh, reminding you of our series in 1 Peter. Last year we did a whole, the whole year was 1 Peter. And if you remember this uh, graphic that we used for the series, 
where, which we entitled Exiles, and, we, and Peter talks about what it means to be a Christian living in a culture that is so different than the values that you have. And I even like that picture. You know, you sort of see a guy sitting in the ruins of a society that used to be something. That, you know, that tire used to be attached to something, and that steel and that cement used to form something, but now it's all crumbled and broken, and he's sort of staring off at the city in the distance. Not a bad picture of what it means to be a Christian in 2016 in the United States of America. We are exiles. And Peter, 2,000 years ago, said, we're exiles. And indeed, we are. This is awkward for us at times. It creates like awkward uh, responsibilities for us. As we're like, what do we do? What do we say? How do we act? And yet, we saw in this series, this verse in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Okay, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the whole book in 1 Peter, we saw over and over again that we do this, yes, with words, but we do this mostly with faithful presence and faithful gospel witness as we just live out normal Christianity in a world that is set against it. And that that living it out acts as a kind of drawing of them as they ask questions like, what are you people all about? Like, you believe that? You act like that? What, what's behind that? And the values that do this are values like love and compassion and kindness, which in Society is hard to find. In the world around us, it's hard to find. But when Christians do that, it makes the world go, hmm, maybe there's something to this thing. One example from this last week that struck me, we all know what happened last Saturday night, the terrible, terrible events in Orlando, uh, the worst mass shooting in American history, and our hearts ought to grieve for the victims and the families and all of that terrible, terrible tragedy. I read something that happened the next day, maybe you saw this, that uh, because there were so many victims, they needed blood. And so this call went out for the residents of Orlando to come and to give blood. And if you saw the lines, like the the city showed up, right? They're all huge, long lines uh, that formed as people were giving blood in response to what happened. Well, Chick-fil-A, which is a company with pretty overt Christian, like, standards and has been vilified for their sexual politics in the past. I don't know if you heard what happened, but the Chick-fil-A's of Orlando, which Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. Did you know that? Many of you know that. You're like, yeah, we tried to go there after church and we couldn't get anything. (laughs) They're not open on Sunday. It's one of their things. And so they're not open on Sunday, but Sunday morning, this last Sunday morning, the Chick-fil-A's of Orlando fired up the grills. They made all kinds of food, and they went and they fed everybody in line giving blood in Orlando. Now, what does, what do you say to that, right? You can vilify, it it gets at the point that I'm making, they can vilify the line, the moral line, but when it's accompanied by unexplainable values and kindness and compassion and generosity, it forces them to think, 
what, maybe there's something to this. And that's what Peter, over and over, the, the wife who's married to the unbeliever, who wins him over without words by the testimony of her life lived out every day in the home. That's, that's, the, you know, that's, the, the, uh, that's God's plan here. We're the exiles. And increasingly in the sexual, political uh, arena around us, we are at odds with a culture that sees gender fluidity and sexual fluidity, and you just sort of pick where you are on the spectrum. How are we to act? What are we to do? The same thing the church has done for 2,000 years. We faithfully, with presence and words, live out the values that our faith has created in our hearts by the grace of God. And I would maintain to you that as these things continue to go this direction, while tragic from one respect, in another perspective, it is the church's greatest opportunity to live out the real humanity that God intended in a world that increasingly is all confused by it. Okay? And that, today in my message, lots of things we talk about, it's one message, okay, I'm not touching on everything, but for today, on Father's Day, I want to talk with you about the church doing all that it can through families and discipleship to turn males into men and then, Lord willing, to turn men into husbands and fathers, okay? That's where we're going today, okay? So boys to men, men to husbands and fathers. So let's begin with male, okay? Just male. To be a male, congratulations. What did you do to be male? You showed up with the appropriate plumbing, and they go, look, it's a boy, right? <laughs> male, it's half of the gender, human gender, right? Male and female. Where did this come from? We find in Scripture that this came by God's design. And I'll just quote one Scripture here that gets at this. Um, Jesus was asked a question, not about gender specifically, but about marriage and whether it's okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And there was a whole school of thought at the time that said, she burns the toast, she's out, right? And Jesus answers this, and part of his answer, here's Matthew 19, verse 4, is this. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Huge implications to what Jesus says here, especially on this subject, because we see here that gender is God's design, that from the beginning, God made them male and female, that your gender and my gender is a part of the sovereign hand and plan of God. If you are a man, God wanted, or if you're male, God wanted you to be male. If you are female, God wanted you to be female. In his plan, this is what he deemed best. God is not at the ultrasound with the parents wondering what the gender is going to be. He already knows and determined in his sovereign power and plan. And we see here also that gender and gender roles are part of God's plan from the beginning. So our gender is decided by God in the womb. It is indicated by the plumbing that we have, and God is sovereign over it. 
Okay? And this is part of like humanity, right? When, when somebody has a child, although now with the ultrasounds and everything, it's sort of a little bit different, but in, back in the day, back in the Stone Age, when somebody would have a child, what was the first question that people would ask? What's the hair color? No, right? Is it a boy or is it a girl, right? You see the signs in front of the houses. It's a boy, you know, the stork. It's a girl or whatever. I've never seen a sign in front of the house when you drive by and it says, it is whatever it chooses to be someday. (laughs) The very first thing that mattered about you was your gender, boy or girl. And we see this throughout Scripture. This is This is not just sort of out there for whatever social construct. This is part of God's design and plan. In fact, just quickly, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, again, we spent all kinds of time on this, but if you go to 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul talks about gender and how important gender is and makes the argument that we have a responsibility to live out on the outside, even in our dress, that's what he says, what our culture and societal expectations are for being a man or a woman. And says that for a man to look like a woman or a woman to look like a man, this is not good. Okay? This is not good. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay? Another example of this, and I think the best example, is Jesus. Okay? You might still be here going, well, but you can interpret that differently. Okay. But what you can't argue is this, that if there was ever a human being that had a right when they lived on earth to live anywhere on the gender spectrum that they wanted to, it would be the Son of God. And yet, Jesus comes, he is born male, and his entire life he chose to express himself as a male, according to the culture of his day. So we have, for example, uh, the fact that he could have done, looked like, dressed like, wore his hair like, whatever he wanted to. And yet his entire life epitomized masculinity uh, in the culture of that day. He dressed and he looked like a man. In his relationships, we find that men are drawn to him. He goes to 12 guys and says, hey, follow me. And 12 guys, you have, a, you have like a political assassin type guy, you've got a CPA kind of guy, you've got blue collar sort of fisherman sort of guys, and Jesus was so masculine in, in his uh, expression that 12 men followed him for like three years, lived every day with him, saw him up close. Men were attracted to Jesus. His vocational choice, son of a carpenter, He himself worked as a carpenter. And even in his singleness, he showed himself to be masculine. And I, as many of you know, in my own story, I became a father when I was 45 years old. Okay, so for a couple decades there, Father's Day, we have the prayer, the stand, and all of that. I never was standing. I never was, that was never me kind of wondering, maybe is it ever going to be me? Am I going to be a dad? And yet, As a single, I have every opportunity, like Jesus, to express my gender in a masculine sort of way. He was, Jesus was the most masculine man who has ever lived and yet was single, okay? And that says something, doesn't it? And I say that for the encouragement of any of the singles that are here with respect to your gender. Jesus is the ultimate 
example. So as we think about being a male, okay, we are born male, we have the plumbing of a male, congratulations, you're male, you didn't do anything for that, but there is a huge difference between being a male and being a man. Males need to become men. They don't always do that. And part of the reason is they don't know what it means to be a man. And I wonder, even if I was to sort of do a little survey here today, if I said, hey, what are you? And you go, man, all the way. And I say, could you tell me what does it mean to be a man? Have you seen my biceps? Thank you. <laughs> Whoever that was, if she's married, do not look at the biceps of the husband next to her. Do not. <laughs> Everything in me, the rest of this message, I'm going to try not to look. What does it mean to be a man, though? Like, could you say what, this is what it means to be a man? We better get this down. And the church needs to make it clear what it means to be a man so that our young our males know what they are aspiring to be, and the older males know what they ought to be, which is to be a man. So what does it mean to be a man? And essentially, this is, men are God's design within the home and within the church and within society for leadership, for protection, and, pro, and for provision. To be a man essentially is to willingly assume the responsibility as God has designed man in society. And specifically, again, that is servant leadership, protection, and provision for women, for his wife, for his children, and for himself. Here's John Piper. He's written a lot about uh, biblical Gender, he says this about being a man. At the heart of biblical masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And that is simply to say at the end there that this can be one thing when you're a son with respect to your mom or with respect to your sisters. This can be another thing when maybe you are you know, an adult and single with respect to sisters in the church or whatever. It means something different when you are married with a wife and something different again when you are a father to children. But a man is a male who willingly assumes those responsibilities. He does not shirk them. He does not cower from them. He has the courage. He has the hair on his chest, metaphorically speaking, to step up to the plate and to assume those responsibilities. There are a lot of males around who do not qualify as men. Okay? We're hoping you're not one of them. And the reason this is so important is that identity shapes role and function. How a male sees himself, how a man sees himself, will shape the way that he expresses himself in those relationships and in those contexts. And a man has to understand his identity as a man if he is going to fulfill his role as a man. Side note here a second. 
The Bible, while the Bible calls men to leadership, the Bible also affirms the absolute equality amongst the genders, okay? So men and women, male and female, God created both of us. We are equal. There is no uh, value or worth statement here. It is a reflection of the Trinity and those Trinitarian relationships where you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, no one more valuable, no one more powerful, more all-knowing than the other. They are absolute equal, and yet within the Trinity, you have differing roles between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God creates then in the world a reflection of that equal worth, differing roles. And we call it gender, male and female, man, woman, husband, wife. I want to make that clear. So for a man then, this means that in marriage, in family, and in the church, men are called to serve as servant leaders. Okay, to provide leadership as servants, to lead primarily in love. And you know, our definition around here of love, self-giving for the good and joy of another. A husband or a father leads in the home by living in a manner that is self-giving for their joy, for their nourishment, for their provision. He gives of himself for them. That's what it means to be a man. Okay? It is a self-giving, selflessness call. To lead in love. So how do boys who are males become men who assume those responsibilities? Primarily, they are inspired to do so by a man who is giving them an example. You heard that in the, t- in the testimony, the video that we just played. As Josh talks about his dad and the the accumulated effect of year after year observing an imperfect but inspiring example in his dad in the way that he cared for the neighbors and cared for mom and cared for the kids, that the cumulative effect of that inspires him now, he says, to do the same for my wife and for my children and for my neighbors And dads have this um, massive opportunity to masculinize their sons. Boys become men by being around masculine men. And you see why in our culture now, as we have the feminization, generally, of men, why over time, as each generation has a little less masculine example to be inspired to, the overall effect is a general decline of the men in society, which is what I think we have going on right now. Boys need masculine men around them. Now, as an encouragement, I think dad is the best, but he's not the only. God can use other masculine men in that son's life. This can be grandpa, this can be uncle, this can be a godly man in the church, youth pastor, whatever it is. God can use those other men to sort of stand in the gap, and we thank God for the men that do that. But the best is dad, because the son sees how dad treats mom and learns something about how men should relate to women. And he sees the way that dad treats sisters. 
And he learns a little something about how men should relate to women. Now, as I talk about this, I feel very, the potential for being hypocritical is there for Pastor Steve standing here in the pulpit because these are very difficult things to do well. And there isn't a perfect man in this room. There's not a perfect father. There's only one, and he's good, 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 as we got done singing. But God, I don't think, expects us to do it perfectly. But to do it consistently is a huge opportunity. If you find a masculine, godly man, I would challenge you to go up to him and to say, could you explain to me how you became the kind of man that you are? And I'll bet almost every time he will say, there was somebody in my life, a man that I, got, that I was close to, that inspired me to be the man that I am today. And most men will say probably their dad. That's the opportunity that we have here, friends. Now, one thing I want to say very carefully here is this. If you're here, you're a son, you're a daughter, and you didn't have a dad, either by his choice or by circumstance, I want to encourage you that God can form our sexual identities anyway through the church led by godly men or simply through the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in our life. He is absolutely committed to healing every brokenness in us, including our sexual identity. And the Holy Spirit can do that. God's way bigger than our life circumstances, and we can take comfort in his work in our life. Okay? So males have the plumbing. They're born with it. Men are males that assume the responsibility that God has called them to. Let's talk about dads, okay? So men become dads, yes, husbands first, but dads, what does it mean to be a dad then? And I would say to be a dad is to be a part of God's design for generational spiritual influence, okay? Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2. It says this, for you know how like a father with his children, okay, so Paul draws an analogy here about his ministry with them, like what a father will do with their children, or we say maybe what a father ought to do with their children. Namely, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Dads, that's the big thing right there, to walk, to teach them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And in a message like this, I'm not touching on everything, I keep saying that, but I always feel like, man, we can talk about this, we talk about that, it's kind of a flyby, but I want to acknowledge here something to you and to encourage something to you, that dads, the number one thing that needs to be a priority in our hearts and life is our children embracing Jesus as their Savior and living a life to his glory. That is the number one thing. I can tell you right now, if you if you, you know, gun to my head, whatever it is, say, what is it that you want more than anything else? The number one thing that I want is for my two daughters to come under the grace of God by faith and to spend eternity with me. Number one. Okay? Now, I love Jennifer, and, but she's a Christian already, right? I got eternity locked down with her. I hope that's an encouragement to you. <laughs> 
I love Bethel Church and you and what God's doing here and all the, I love it, I'm for it, I want that. But if you're going to put me down and say you get to pick one thing, for those two little girls to come to know the Lord Jesus, I mean, that's the big thing. And I think it has to be Christian dad. And I say this because there's a thousand distractions from that primary goal that in society and even in expectations of society to be a parent are thrown at us. And I see this around us. I, I see it some in the church where you, you know, families listen to me. I say this in love, but there, there's a thousand things that your kids can do. And t- they're all great, okay? Yes, look at the ice skating. And oh, look at the backwards roll. And look at the, my child's GPA. He was, you know, honor student at such and such elementary school. Yay, that's great. But they can be a 4.0 and go to hell. My son was second, second team all-conference in such and such a sport. Second team all-conference. He went to a community college and played two years of whatever. Great. That's so great. But to be all-team second conference, he never went on a missions trip with a youth group, rarely was a part of discipleship around the church, never was had an opportunity to serve anybody else because all the time doing that, that single sport. Congratulations, second team all-conference. But if your son doesn't embrace Jesus, he will spend eternity in punishment. I'll just be blunt, right? That's, just, that's the deal. He's going to live, he's going to die and go to heaven or hell. And as a Christian parent, we don't save our kids. And there's no formula for this. But we have an opportunity for massive spiritual influence in the lives of our kids. And to marshal every resource that we have to do all that we can for them to be drawn to genuine faith in Jesus. What more could we want? So how do we do this? I have a few suggestions, biblical ones. Fathers, the first is tender discipline of our kids. There's no manual in the New Testament on how to be a dad. We just have these little glimpses, this verse here, this little example here. The Apostle Paul, in two passages, in in letters that he wrote to two churches, almost uh, it's, it's almost like a perfect repetition what he says. This is Colossians 3.21. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay, now here's Ephesians 6. Almost the same, slightly different. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, is it just a, a happen chance that What is repeated here is do not provoke your children. I don't think so. Paul knew something inspired by the Holy Spirit that for a dad, one of our dangers is to get so frustrated with our kids or to to come down so hard on them that the end result is that they actually resent us and they resent our whole like faith structure. We were so rigid. It was, it was law, not love. It was law, not grace. And he says, don't 
father your kids in a way that they just end up hating you. Now, dads, let's be honest. Our kids can at times, every like once a year, frustrate us. <laughs> and we can express that frustration with words that come out sometimes forcefully, right? But if that is the ongoing, everyday experience of a child, not only is he not going to like us, he's not going to like the Jesus that we claim to follow. And we undermine the big goal, which is them coming to faith in Christ by the way that we father them. He says, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Now, that said, discipline is important, okay? We are to discipline our kids, and here's every kid's least favorite verse in the Bible, Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Kids, we don't like those verses, do we? And sometimes your parents will pull out the old, this hurts me more than it hurts you. That just means they're not spanking you hard enough, okay? <laughs> Discipline's important because it forms moral character. We want our kids to understand that there are consequences to disobedience. And the Bible has examples of dads who didn't do that. Samuel didn't do it with his kids, and his kids were terrors. David, the Bible says that with respect to Absalom, David did not ever tell him no. A surefire way to raise a hellion is to never tell your child no, to never correct him in any way. Oh, whatever you want to do, I love you. Go visit him in jail with that. But it's easy to miss the other side. And here's the balance then. And I think the Ephesians passage actually gets to the balance is that we don't provoke him to anger, okay? Rather, we are to build them up, to bring them up. This is nurturing. Okay, dads, we're called to be nurturers. Sometimes in a garden, you've got to pull out the weeds, don't you? And in the character of our kids, we pull out the weeds by disciplining them. But a good gardener is not always pulling things up. They have to be planting. They have to be fertilizing. They have to be watering. And parenting, it seems to me, is a whole lot of nurturing, promoting, encouraging the kind of character qualities that are pleasing to the Lord. And I think most of this has to do with our words, dads, okay? What we say and how we say it. And sometimes the how we say it's the one that gets us in trouble, isn't it? Okay. That harsh word, that forceful word, maybe we say it a little harder than we meant to, feels to the child and their sort of tender spirit like you hate them and you don't care about them. And that's why I would strongly encourage us to really work hard at being good at affirming words. This is like the secret weapon of a dad. Affirming words, words that build them up when we see a quality that we, that we want to uh, enhance to affirm that quality. Son, I loved it when you were sweet to your sister in the way that you did this or that. That was really, really great. Those kinds of words are powerful. The best word or words is I love you. I love you. I remember talking with a dad in our church and I think it had to do with his own parents' experience. 
He couldn't, bring, he couldn't bring himself to tell his kids he loved them. Something about those words, he just couldn't say it. I love you. I've got a little thing with Kira Lee, my daughter. We've done it for as long as she could talk almost. Because that night, I would, I would, when she was real little, I'd put her down and I'd say, I love you so much. And she'd smile, you know. Well, as she was able to talk, I, was, I started saying, how much does daddy love you? She'd go, so much. And that's our nightly routine. Every night as I'm closing the door and turning out, how much does daddy love you? So much. And I love that because when she's 25 and talking about dad, the cumulative effect of that over time and time and time, I hope she remembers me as a father. I hope to still be around, by the way. I'm talking like I'm dead when she's 25. But... I hope she remembers me as dad who loved her so much. I love you. Tender discipline, tender words. Secondly, meaningful time. And we used to just say time. Dads, we need to spend time with our kids. But there's been an invention that has created an extra need to add the word meaningful. Any guesses what that invention is? Did I hear smartphone? Is that what I heard out there? Yes, indeed. How easy it is now to be with your kids but not be with your kids. For them not to have your attention. And, uh, you know, this is technology sort of taking over. And I say this to myself as much as to any dad that is here, that our children will not be inspired by being in the same room with us. It will be as we give them attention. And I think a huge step forward for many of us would even be on this Father's Day for us to commit to moderating that in a way that our children sense that they have our love and attention. And I wonder with an amen, dads, could you commit on this Father's Day to striving to moderate in that area? Amen? Amen. Amen to that. Being a dad is time. And I have found that this means me not doing things that I used to do as much. Sad to say. No. It's not, actually, because this is really the question. What's worth more to us? Okay, Perfect yard. Discipling my children. Time with my children. Great golf game. (laughs) Time with my children. Super clean car. Time with my children. Hobby, whatever. Time with my children. And I hope that's an easy answer for us, but in life it can be a little challenging, can it? And this is where as Christian fathers, again, what does it mean to be a man? It is to assume responsibility. So the, the, you know, the sort of stereotypical 28-year-old living in the basement, amazing at video games, but refusing to take responsibility as a man highlights that To be a dad is a man who's already settled the matter, whether or not he is going to be the kind of guy that God wants him to be, and to treat your children accordingly. 
time. I'll tell you one of the things my dad, here's one of my dad's tricks. My dad took us to everything. My dad played church softball, church basketball leagues, all this stuff he would do. But he always took us with. Like, I remember growing up, we were all the time going to, like, church softball practice. And, in, you know, here comes Roger DeWitt, and here comes the four kids, you know. And I'm sure the other men are like, oh, because I'm, I'm out there trying to, you know, catch fly balls. And let me bat, let me bat. And the bats were so heavy, I could hardly swing them. And they're like, come on, DeWitt. But my dad took us to everything. And the cumulative effect, and this is what fathering is, I think, is largely it's a cumulative effect of all of those experiences and time in the car and all of the, you know, the ice cream cone on the way home and the watermelon and all that, all of those are fond memories to me with my father that to this day are examples of inspiration to be like him. I had time with him. Take your kids with you. Let them see you serving others. Let them see you doing life. Third thing is spiritual conversation. I'll go quickly here. Here's Deuteronomy 6, one of the key passages in Judaism. Moses, about to die, tells Israel this is the way that this whole Judaism, this whole Israel thing is going to continue. He says this in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, talk with your kids about these truths. What truths? He's retelling the entire law in Deuteronomy. You can talk about the weather. You can talk about the crops. But you make sure that you are talking with your kids about the central truths of our faith. That's what Moses said. And the same thing applies to us, Christian parents. We have to have spiritual conversations with our kids. And this is not to be that sort of like, you know, Christmas and Easter conversation. It is to be kind of an ongoing part of the chatter of your life. To just be talking about spiritual things. Now, this assumes that that is in your heart first. And one of the reasons I think Christian parents struggle to talk about Christian truths with their Christian kids is that those truths are not quick on their tongue in the first place. So that assumes a certain priority in my heart that translates then into sort of a freedom of conversation with my kids about spiritual things. Now, how do I do that? I got some suggestions here. Regular family devotions. Anybody heard of those? Hard to do with that TV on, isn't it? So hard. So hard. But that's a soul that's going to spend eternity somewhere. And we'd have, I'd have all kinds of suggestions. I don't have time about how to do that. We've done that in the past. Regular family devotions, reading the Bible, reading an age-appropriate curriculum, something like that. Praying with your children. Pray with them. Not just at night, not just at the meal, but just pray over their school day. Pray over the test they have. Pray, pray over Aunt Lulu and whatever's going on in your life. Just pray. Have a spirit of prayer. Third, catechisms or scripture memory programs. I'm hoping to start something like this with my daughter, Kira Lee, very soon. Kind of force spiritual conversation. Just daily spiritual content in your conversation. Going to church together. 
This is a big one. Go to church together. Sit together. On the way home, talk about what you learned and people you met and things that are going on, the sermon, whatever. It's a great opportunity to create a spiritual culture of conversation. Ask questions with spiritual answers. What's God been teaching you? What's one thing I can pray for you about in your day-to-day? Things like this. Christian parenting, it should be just one long spiritual conversation with your kids. And you got to do this winsomely. Like if you're like, hey, look, a goat, what does it tell you about God? <laughs> They're going to be like, you're weird. Why did God give me you as my parents? That, that, that does not inspire them. It doesn't inspire them. So we're not talking about being weird, but just it's just normal Christianity being talked about. How about singing together? We enjoy having Christian music playing in our house, especially the girls are young now. We've got these scripture songs. They learn learn scripture just because they learn the songs. I don't know. I throw that out for whatever reason. But dads, when you talk about spiritual things, it's great when mom does, but we sort of expect mom to. When dad talks about spiritual things, things God's teaching him, prayer requests in his own life, scripture he read that day, the sermon on Sunday, it means even more. Do it, okay? The last thing is gospel example, okay? Gospel example. And I say gospel example here because the gospel is not, hey, I'm awesome, kids, be like me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, I'm a sinner. I need God's grace every day. Come follow Jesus with me. And that authenticity serves to encourage our kids in a way that all our perceived perfection never, ever will. And this is where I think dads, we have that powerful uh, influence of example in the life of our kids. And they're going to see us up close, okay, year after year, day after day, and they're going to form an opinion about the reality of our faith or not. And nobody does it perfectly, and I I mean this as encouragement, but as we faithfully live that out, we can become a kind of masculine, male, man, husband, dad, spiritual hero in the life of our kids. And in the end, that's that's being a dad the right way. One quick story to illustrate this. A couple months ago, Child Evangelism Fellowship, I don't know if you're familiar with CEF, but it's a worldwide mission agency to children, um, asked me to be a part of this thing that they were doing down in San Antonio. And so I went, and I had a little speaking role in it. And um, uh, So it was at the Westin Hotel on the Riverwalk in San Antonio. Nice. That's right. It was, it was really nice. So one day I thought, I'm going to go work out. Okay, so I go, I go down the hallway, about to get in the elevator. Out of the elevator comes this super tall guy. It's one of those where you go, wow, you don't see that every day. And uh, I go down in the elevator. I'm about to go into the gym. Here comes another super tall guy. And so I stopped him and I said, excuse me. I said, I just got out of the, out in the elevator and there was a really tall guy. And now I see you. I go, what's up? <laughs> he says, we're the Sacramento Kings. We're here to play the Spurs. I'm like, cool, really? That's so awesome. So 
he, he leaves, I go into, the, it's just a little hotel gym, and a friend of mine with CEF is on the treadmill, and I, so I get on the elliptical next to him, and he's running, I'm like this, and I say, hey, I said, did you know that staying in our hotel are the Sacramento Kings? He goes, I know, isn't that great? I go, I know, it's awesome. And, uh, and so I look over his shoulder, and it's not a very big gym, and right over there is a kind of athlete-looking guy, and... Uh, so I, I, I got on my phone because I don't know the roster very well, and I'm like flipping through the roster, and I look at a picture, and I looked at him, and I, I said to my friend, I go, I said, hey, I said, that's Steph Curry's brother, Seth, right there. He goes, no way. I said, yeah. He goes, my kids would love me if I got a picture with him. He said, will you take it? I go, sure. So we get off the machines. We go walking over to uh, Seth, and my friend says, hey, are you Steph Curry's brother? Now, Seth, like, played for Duke, pro player. He's very distinguished in his own right. Are you Steph Curry's brother? Brothers love to hear that, don't they? He goes, yeah. My friend goes, could I get a picture with you for my kids? He goes, okay. So they turn. I take the picture. You know, my friend's super giddy. We're like, hey. We go back. to. We're like, oh, that was really awesome, wasn't it? So he ends up leaving, and I go over to where the weights are, and and Seth Curry had left as well, and, and there, there was a woman doing something there, and, and she looks at me, she goes, hey! And I said, hey! And uh, I said, are you a CEF? And, and she said, I'm here for the conference. I had already spoken, so she had recognized me, and I said, I said uh, oh, that's really great. Where are you from? I'm from California. Okay, that's really great. I said, hey, did you know that staying in our hotel are the Sacramento Kings? She says, who are the Sacramento Kings? <laughs> I said, they're an NBA basketball team. She goes, oh, I'm more of an NFL girl. So I said, I go, hey, did you know standing right next to you right here was Steph Curry's brother? And she says, who's Steph Curry? I go, who's Steph Curry? He's like on the Wheaties boxes. Everybody's talking about him. MVP, like best player. Blah, 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 blah. Steph Curry like this. I pause and she says to me, she goes, well, to me, the real heroes in this hotel are the CEF workers. <laughs> right? Oh, she nailed me on that one. And I say all of that because it's so easy to get confused about who the real heroes are, right? And your kids, they, they may admire LeBron or Steph Curry or whatever singer or actor, actress, whatever it is, but they'll never meet them. They'll just be a picture on their wall. But every day, Dad, you are in their life. And someday... You want them to see you as their hero, the real hero in their story. And I want to encourage you with that opportunity and for our faithful Christian dads here to work very hard to turn males into men and for those men to become faithful husbands and Lord willing fathers who raise children, your grandchildren, in the faith, 
in the faith. Let's be those heroes to our kids. Amen.